A Light to the Nations is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of A Light to the Nations. I'm your host for this podcast, Father Fred Shaheen. And today I'm pleased to welcome, joining me on the podcast, Noel Neff. Noel is the Sunday School Director at St. George Orthodox Church, where I'm the pastor. And today she brings a question about the value of functionality in Scripture. Welcome, Noel, to the podcast. Thank you, Father. Um, I'm excited to be here to ask a question. In your sermons and in our Friday morning Bible study, you've been teaching us that Scripture is functional. And I have to admit that it's taken me quite some time to piece together what this even means. I've been a lifelong student of the Bible, and I have never heard of the idea of functionality in Scripture before. With years of study and a religion degree on top of that, I could say that I understood most of the theological, cultural, and political lenses Scripture is commonly viewed through. I could tell you about religious and academic thinkers and their views on the Bible, but I always had this nagging feeling that I was somehow missing the whole point of Scripture. I understood on some fundamental level that this was meant to be for my salvation, but I never really understood how. It wasn't until I began hearing from you that scripture is functional that I started to slowly realize how scripture is actually salvific. This ultimately led me to the question we are focusing on in today's podcast. That question is, if scripture is functional, are we as hearers of scripture supposed to live functionally? Or, to put it another way, is there salvation in living functionally versus essentially or in essence? Now this is a big question, and before we dive into our answer, I think it might be useful for our listeners to be reminded of what the word functional and essential actually mean according to their basic definitions. I think this is important because in our world today we often derive meaning based off of our feelings, and I think it's always good to go back and look at objective definitions for things so that we can understand what we're actually talking about. Yes, of course, Noel. I think that's a great idea. Why don't you remind us of what those words mean, functionality versus essentiality. So here are a couple definitions I pulled off the internet. For the word functional, it's defined as something that is capable of functioning, working, or operating towards a purpose, something that is designed to be practical and useful rather than attractive and capable of serving the purpose for which it was designed. Now for the word essential, that is defined as of or relating to or constituting essence, something that is inherent. Thank you. Now that we have our definitions, we can return to your question about whether or not it is salvific to live functionally. First of all, to say something about functionality in scripture, you know, today we are all disciples of Plato, and by that I mean that our understanding of reality is mostly as a world of ideas. But scripture differs radically from that. In the language in which the Old Testament was written, Hebrew, which is a Semitic language, the nouns existence, essence, person, and being are not even to be found. Scripture concerns itself with reality as it stands, life on the ground, so to speak. The God of Scripture issues commandments that require action on the part of the hearer. 
Rather than being interested in what people think, he is interested in what they do. Let's look at an example from the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. This is known as the parable of the Last Judgment. Okay, Noel, would you read for us verses 31 through 46, please? When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Thank you. So in that passage, we can talk about functionality in a couple of ways. First of all, we are told that the Son of Man comes in his glory with all the holy angels with him and sits on the throne of his glory. After he separates the sheep from the goats, it says, then the king will say to those on his right hand, the same Jesus who had come as the Son of Man is now seated on the throne and functioning as the King, thus the Judge. It's not a different character. It's still Jesus, but he functions in a different way here. And the text of the Gospel of Matthew has no problem making that shift from calling him the Son of Man to calling him the King. And this is not based on any essential quality or reality, but rather reflects how Jesus is acting in the biblical story, how he functions, in other words. So if I'm hearing you correctly, Jesus is functioning in this parable as the king for the purpose of judging human beings. Can we then say that we should not focus on his essential or inherent qualities as the son of man, the king and judge? We cannot say that as king and judge, he will resemble some notion we have about his inherent godly being. Rather, this is what we are told he will do, and we will know him by that. I think you're exactly right, Noel. It's problematic when we approach scripture with uh, a theological or philosophical notion already in our heads, and all of us have those. We were taught those, we were indoctrinated with those, and we believe those. You and I, as 
Orthodox Christians profess certain things about Jesus in our creed as a formal statement of faith, but even that sometimes gets in the way of actually hearing what the scriptural text is telling us when it's telling us about it. And I think this is a great example. Jesus is called the Son of Man, first of all here, and he appears coming again, returning as the Son of Man. And then suddenly the text makes the shift into him making a judgment as the king. So it's being flexible with Jesus's function. If we are pinning Jesus down to what our creed says and always having that in our mind, it's difficult to make the transition to actually hear that Matthew is going from son of man to king. And son of man's important because it's the one title that Jesus applies to himself uniformly in the New Testament the most often. He doesn't refer to himself as son of God. He never calls himself God from God or light from light but simply son of man, Ben Adam, the son of another man. And I think if we want to really hear what the scriptural story is telling us at every time, we have to hear what it is saying and hear these titles as functional rather than essential. You're absolutely right about that. Well, so Jesus is the same character, but he's functioning here as the king and judge, the son of man, an ordinary man who's following his father's teaching. Yes. And in this particular pericope, this section where it is the, the judgment, um, he does, of course, have to function as a king and a judge, but it is the Son of Man, the same character that we've encountered throughout the New Testament in the earlier parts, who was simply teaching and following Scripture and being faithful to his Father's commandments, as you said. So it's the same person, um, and then Matthew makes the shift, though, in our hearing from Son of Man returning to that same character. As, as it were, now sitting on the throne as king and judge. So when we hear scripture, we want to hear that shift functionally and not essentially, exactly as you said. Another thing about that passage, another aspect of the functionality, the words that he addresses to the sheep on his right and to the goats on his left are descriptions of concrete actions that they either did or neglected to do. And the verdict of their being either blessed or cursed is based solely on that that criteria, what they did or did not do. Significantly, there's no mention here at all about thoughts, feelings, understanding, intellect, or human reasoning. So this is an example of how seeing things functionally in the scriptural texts helps us to understand the teaching. But more importantly, that the teaching is expected to produce a concrete, tangible result. To put it another way, it is expected to bear fruit. The problem in scripture, literarily the source of all of its tension, is always the way human beings respond to a command given by God. So the purpose of the scriptural stories, we might say, is to teach us the correct behavior. Once again, according to this teaching, God is not interested in what we think, but what we do or fail to do. This seems like such a foreign idea to me. In the West, I feel like we're so preoccupied with proving or disproving the Bible as a historical account of the essence or being of God. And we seem to easily dismiss the idea that scripture is a narrative about how God commands us to behave. To return to our original definitions of functional versus essential, it is far less attractive to view scripture as a practical teaching about behavior than it is to exist in the realm of ideas, dreaming about the inherent qualities of God. 
In scripture, it seems as if there is nothing quote-unquote new under the sun. There's so much repetition. It seems that most of the characters in the Bible at one point or another sinned and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We hear of God's judgment and mercy again and again on Israel for repeatedly failing to follow God's commandments. Does the repetition in the Bible have something to do with its functionality? Yes, it certainly does. There's repetition throughout in the Bible. It's, uh, we might even say um, it's one long repetition of the same cycle of command, disobedience, punishment, and then return. You know, that's the story of biblical Israel, but it's also the example of any hearer uh, that could be applied to them. Um, so why repetition, and what does that have to do with functionality? Well, in the ancient world, the production of scripture was costly and a cumbersome undertaking. It wasn't like it is today. Think about how easy it is to write with a few strokes of a keyboard and then make changes or additions and then restore it all in a cloud. But when we appreciate how much effort and time went into the production of such a massive body of literature like the scriptures, we realize that whatever is written there serves a purpose and isn't extraneous. The writers of scripture weren't just filling up pages to meet a required word count. So something like repetition, and there's plenty of that in scripture, serves a purpose. It's to reinforce what was said the first time. When something is repeated in the biblical text, it's the equivalent of bolding or underlining the text, as we might do in modern writing. When we hear repetition, instead of dismissing it because we already heard it, we should earmark it as important and try to understand why is this being emphasized. In scripture, we encounter a lot of numbers as well, like 3, 12, 7, they're common numbers. Are they functional as well? Oftentimes, numbers can be viewed or heard symbolically, and I, I do think they have a function. I mean, that's how they work. In the original languages of the Bible, um, they have their own way of expressing things that we don't readily understand hearing it in English. You mentioned the number three. I think that's a great example. If we think about three as in the third time some event happens, it functions like this. Three times is to say that indeed the said thing actually happened. And when we're talking about biblical Hebrew, which is a Semitic language, this is just how the expression of that idea um, happens, right? Um, one time could be an anomaly, two times might be a coincidence, but three times would be the minimum number required to affirm that the thing indeed happened, that it is actually so. In English, the temptation is to hear it literally and then to hear it as limited to only three instances. But its use in the biblical text is functional and not necessarily expressive of a numeric quantity. We hear this in the New Testament, which was written in Greek, but its writers understood how Semitic languages function. In the accounts in all four Gospels, for example, Jesus is raised up from the dead after three days. Also in the Gospel of John, there's a specific mention of Jesus appearing three times to his disciples after he is raised from the dead for the same reason. So the gospel writers are not really concerned about the historical accuracy of Jesus being raised up after three literal days, but that Jesus was indeed raised up as a matter of truth. Yes, I think the gospel writers are not um, inclined to or interested in presenting us with um, a historical timeline so that we keep track of the data and measure it out and know um, when things happen. They're not giving us information, but they're 
teaching us. And as an aside, you know, growing up, hearing the passion narratives and understanding how that works. You know, liturgically, we celebrate uh, Holy Friday, and we know that Christ is crucified on that day, and then we celebrate his resurrection on Sunday. Well, if you follow the accounts in the Gospels, um, and there's some variation on some of the details in the Synoptic Gospels and in John. But for example, if Jesus is crucified on Friday at, say, three o'clock in the afternoon, and if he dies, um, well, say he dies at three o'clock in the afternoon, right? He is dead on the cross. And then we hear about him being taken from the cross, being laid in the tomb on the Sabbath day. And then on the first day of the week after the Sabbath, at the earliest possible time before the rising of the sun, they go to find him in the tomb and he's not there. So his resurrection has already happened. Um, just numerically, if you're locked into hearing it that way, it doesn't add up. How do you get three days? And it's affirmed repeatedly throughout the New Testament by Jesus himself. After three days, he will be raised up. It's a constant refrain. So it's trying to tell us something than a numerical quantity of days. Um, this is showing how three might function as um, showing that the thing actually happened. It's assured. It is indeed true in that it is happening after three days. I know we're exploring the question of whether or not living functionally is salvific, but I am wondering if the concept of essence and energies in orthodoxy is at all related to what we are talking about here. Yes, that's a great question. Um, essence versus energies and maybe um, how that relates to function, what we're talking about in the scriptures. Um, if we look at Genesis, the first book of the biblical story, um, actually the, the first verses in the biblical Hebrew, it's very telling. It says, and if you translate it, translated it literally and in the exact order the words are pre being presented, in the beginning, as a premise, as a starting point, in other words, created God. So I know that sounds like uh, you know, the verb comes before the noun. It's almost like Yoda speak, but we understand that. We don't speak like that normally. In the beginning, we would say God created. But looking at the Hebrew, it's in the beginning created God. That's important because before we even hear God, the text gives us the verb, the action. How God functions and what he does is what's important here. So it's almost like the biblical text doesn't give you the opportunity to imagine who God is or what he is or import any idea you might have of a deity because it's not even introducing that Elohim, right, the name for God, before it tells you that he created. He bara in Hebrew, which um, we might even understand as made functional, right? In classical Christianity, so much time and effort is spent trying to define who God is when in actuality script is interested in telling you what he does. So we see a contrast right there. Scripture teaches what he does, and um, it expects us to act upon that, to modify our behavior, and to, as we said earlier, bear fruit through action. St. Gregory Palamas, who was a monastic and theologian from the late Byzantine period, is most widely known for his teaching on the distinction between what he called divine essences and energies. And St. Gregory ultimately concluded that God cannot be known in his essence but only through his energies. And we might say those are actions or expressions of his will. We see this demonstrated throughout the biblical texts that show us a God who speaks and who acts. 
the earliest example of God speaking to a human being, the first conversation even in Genesis chapter 2, is issuing a command. God commands the man that he created, and he issues that command, and he also emits judgment when that command is disobeyed in chapter 3. So this speaks to the importance or the primacy of God as an actor, an agent of issuing commands and emitting judge. We might say he is a judge first and foremost, according to the biblical text. So I guess to sum everything up, scripture is indeed functional. It serves to teach us about who God is by what he does. We cannot know God, his essence, outside of his energies or the way he acts in the world and his will for us. It should perhaps be a priority to focus on what God commands us to do over contemplating the inherent beingness of God or debating the historical accuracy of the Bible. If we are to follow this teaching, our salvation comes in whether or not we functionally do what God commands of us. That is to say, to return to our original definition of functionality, that we act according to the practical, perhaps unattractive purpose for which we were designed. Yes, I think you're right on track with that, Noel. The uh, salvific aspect of Scripture, I think, only works if it is indeed functional. If we hear it as a command, if we hear God as an actor, as somebody who uh, does, who is um, commanding us and requiring us um, to submit to his word, to hear it, and then actually do something, therein lies um, the salvific aspect. But maybe that is unattractive to our modern human in egocentric, um, broken ears. You know, we like the idea of being in command of ourselves and having a choice, but scripture really presents us with one way, and it expects submission. Therein lies the uh, salvific aspect of scripture as it functions. This concludes episode 11 of A Light to the Nations. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Noel, for your question today. Thank you, Father. We'll see you next time.